and we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Uh, We're going to be talking football today, and specifically the Packers, and even more specifically than that, talking about the legendary Vince Lombardi. A little bit later in the hour, you're going to be hearing from sports writer John Eisenberg and his book about Vince Lombardi's very first season with the Green Bay Packers. But first, we're going to be talking about uh, Eric Simonson's play, Lombardi, that just opened this past weekend at the Rhodey Center for the Arts in downtown Kenosha, a production by the Lakeside Players. And I'm really excited to be able to speak for the next few minutes with the co-directors of this production, Charles Ramsey and Mandy Habel Ramsey. We'll be talking about the play, maybe some of the special challenges and opportunities that it presents and what people can look forward to seeing uh, if they take in uh, any of the performances coming up this weekend, the second and final weekend of performances of Lombardi uh, with the Lakeside Players. Charles Ramsey, Mandy Habel Ramsey, we welcome both of you to The Morning Show. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. And I neglected to mention, but uh, it is with Lombardi that the Lakeside Players uh, are kicking off their 50th anniversary season. So this is an important moment in the, in the history of the Lakeside Players. Uh, maybe we could begin real quick by just hearing what your previous involvement with the Lakeside Players has been, each of you. Well, um, we've been around that group for about, well, him 18 years and me about um, 14. Um, we've both uh, acted a bit and um, co-directed, and I've directed some solo, and I've done a couple music directing um, uh, gigs there as well. So your history goes back a, 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 a fair a fair piece uh, and a fair portion yeah. of the 50, 50 years that the Lakeside players have been around. That's correct. Yeah, and I've appeared in a number of uh, about a half dozen plays there over the years on and off. Uh, probably most noteworthy for me was uh, about a decade ago. They did about uh, over four years. We did uh, three different productions of Rudolph the Pissed Off Reindeer, and I was Santa Claus in all three of those. Very good. So tell us about the selection of Eric Simonson's play Lombardi to lead off this 50th anniversary season of the Lakeside Players. First of all, did either of you have any hand in the selection of this play to be part of this special uh, banner season? No, that was uh, with the uh, Lakeside Board. They uh, determined that, and then we applied. Uh, Actually, my wife applied to direct court initially, and then she was uh, asked to do it, and then I joined her after that. Very good. So, uh, so Mandy, Habel Ramsey, what what made you want to be the director of this uh, particular production? What what drew you to the opportunity? Well, when I'm looking to direct a play, I tend to prefer smaller cast plays because um, you can really get into the the meat of um, the subject more and it can be um, even more organized than if you have a lot of people to deal with. You don't have to worry as much about attendance, trying to get um, 15, 20 people all in the same place at the same time um, daily. And um, when I was looking through the options in their season, I saw that there were two options that looked like they could work for me. And when I took a look at uh, the Lombardi play, I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is something that I've never actually 
done before. I've done my share of comedies and uh, a few dramas, but I've never really done a play like this before. It's 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 kind of a drama with some um, comedic elements in it, but. It, the subject matter was uh, very different than what I usually do. So I thought that was kind of intriguing and could offer a challenge. Right. And it's certainly uh, uh, an, an example of, in a sense, nonfiction theater. I mean, you know, by and large, uh, the play seems to stay very true uh, to who Vince Lombardi was. And I know it's uh, based on a highly regarded book about uh, Vince Lombardi. Uh, right. So uh, I think it'd be great if one of you would kind of sketch out sort of what happens through the course of this play. Uh, I mean, in, in, in a sense, what, what sort of arc of time is covered and what kinds of things do we experience through the course of the play? Well, it basically takes you through the year 1965, which was his first year um, it wasn't his first year with the Packers but it was a key year for them because it was the first time they started uh, really getting good and winning the playwright decided not to just do the whole story of his life he was born at this time and this is what he did as a child and the usual things that you will see in a normal um, biography of somebody he decided to choose a short a moment in time to focus on and as a vehicle he chose one fictional person the rest of the characters in the play are all real people Vince, his wife marie the three players jim taylor um dave robinson and um paul horning but there is one character in this play that is not a real person and it's just kind of based on um something that, that may have happened. It's a reporter named Michael McCormick, a young reporter who has been working for Look Magazine and has, is, very, is young and is just starting out and is basically um, done, you know, the, the, the minor articles, uh, you know, the rookie type things. And he gets this amazing opportunity to interview Vince Lombardi because his boss isn't available. Um, Vince Lombardi supposedly in this play is very good friends with, with uh, Michael McCormick's boss. His name is Tom Leiter, which is probably a fictional character as well. I'm not sure. But so he, he gets this opportunity and he, he travels from New York uh, where he lives to Green Bay. He stays at the Lombardi home and he goes out to the football field with Vince and he he experiences a, a, a few days in the life and talks to as many people as he can or tries to. And the whole thing is about, he gets information about Vince as a person and his philosophies and his ideas while trying to collect information for the story. And it's not really, you know, it is about football. It's not really about football because it's more about his whole life, his, his character, who he was as a person. And there are several scenes with his wife. They want to show what his family life was like, at least with his wife. He had kids. They, they, don't, they talk a little bit about the children, but they don't say a whole lot about them. But it's more about how 
what his relationship was with Marie was like. She was the one person who stood up to him. She hmm. he was tough, and he would um, go after her, and she would give a right back to him. And then he tried to interview Paul McCormick. Tried to interview the three players, and Vince does not want him to talk to Jim Taylor because he doesn't think he handles the press very well, and he doesn't want uh, him or either of them to look bad. So he gives him Paul Horning to talk to. And McCormick one day pushes and pushes to still try to get to talk to Jim Taylor. And Vince comes over and says, I want you off my field right now. I told you not to try to talk to Jim Taylor. And you ignored me. You disappoint me. So that's it. So so then he... um, it's spending time at the bar with the players and they talk about what happened and, and some other issues. And, and then later he goes back to get his stuff and they have a long conversation. So it's, so there's a lot of that home life. We do talk, they do have um, discussions with Jim Taylor because this was the year Jim Taylor um, was thinking of leaving the Packers. And there were rumors of him being traded. So there's a nice long scene between him and Vince talking about the grievances he's had, um, things that he'd like to see changed. And they in the end, he and Vince come to an agreement. He says, okay, I'll stay here. I'll stay with you. Paul Horning had some injury issues. And Dave Robinson was the rookie. And he was the, the chairman of the, um, what, I guess, what would now be the Players Union. It was called the Players Association. So we, we learn a little bit about the players as well, but there's not really a tied up ending with, oh, and they won the championship or they won the big game. It was just more, just kind of a cycle through everything. Right. A very, very human story, a human drama. And, and, and yes. I think you're right to say it's a, it's a drama, a serious play that is, uh, that that straddles a, a, a fair amount of humor as well as we get to know this this colorful yes. character, mm-hmm. Charles Ramsey. Uh, so yes. did your so did uh, Mandy uh, send out an SOS for you uh, to join her as co-director, or was it more that uh, not exactly, or was it more that you uh, I, I, were anxious not to miss out on this? <laughs> well, I think it was a combination of those. Uh, so she came back to me, and sometimes we co-direct or I help out or whatever. And uh, so she comes back and says, I'm doing a, a play over uh, there this year. And I said, what's that? And she said, Lombardi. And I said, uh, I'm not trying to be impolite, but you don't know anything about football. So, well, that's not entirely true. Well, I know. But I, I like to say I'm not trying to be impolite. I said, And I thought about it for a moment. I said, uh, may I uh, co-direct with you? And luckily my uh, spouse allowed me to do that. And then we approached the uh, the Lakeside Players Organization, and they allowed me to do that as well. Hmm. So explain so, uh, explain how this co-directing has gone. I mean, have you tried to, in a sense, okay. split the duties down the middle, or are you, have you been really sharing directorship and and co-directing in every aspect of this production? I would say my my spouse does the more uh, day-to-day direction of the show. I make con- contributions uh, here and there as far as uh, going through individual scenes and directing of the actors, although I do a little bit here and there, and that I'm more involved in what, well, could argue be the producing of the show 
getting together various elements of the show, the people we've had work, uh, the wonderful people we've had working uh, backstage with us on that, you know, set pieces and uh, things like that. Uh, I just found uh, as we've worked together over time here in uh, as uh, directors that I, I kind of like that role better. It's kind of more of a uh, big picture issues. Mm. I know that one thing that can be a bit of a challenge in casting this play is the fact that uh, you need several men who are who look plausible as professional football players, and uh, that's uh, that's not always a particularly easy matter. Can I just ask you about sure. the, the challenge of that, as well as the challenge of casting someone? Uh, in the iconic role of Vince Lombardi, a persona, of course, so well-known to all of us. Uh, so tell us about casting this, this, this play. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I was involved with my wife and casting as well. That's a very good question, you know, and we, uh, you know, we've done plays over there and we know, you know, various possibilities and we threw around a number of names and, uh, some of them came in somewhere, didn't come in. Uh, and then some other people came in and I, who I didn't know, and she knew a couple of them. Some we neither of us knew, and uh, we got we got kind of lucky on it. I think we had in the audition process. I would argue several uh, viable choices to play Lombardi, who's of course the central role in the play. Uh, uh, but we decided after the uh, the auditions, we decided to vote, get our own vote, and then say at the same time who we wanted to play it. And we uh, both said the same individual. His name is Matt Hoy, and he's been doing a fantastic job uh, in the part on it. Uh, the players is also interesting as well. Uh, two of the three were individuals we did not know. Uh, one is also a player of color. So there had to be some uh, a person of color in that part, uh, Dave Robinson's character. And uh, we, uh, as far as that part concerned, we had a, a gentleman named Marcus Wood come in who had just uh, recently started acting. He had appeared at the uh, previous show in Lakeside, uh, Charlotte's Web, and uh, has a background, uh, has an interest in broadcasting. And he came in, and he's been absolutely marvelous uh, for us. It's been a delight to, to work with him. And uh, so we got, uh, you know, just in general, we got extremely lucky uh, on that. We also got extremely lucky on the part of Michael McCormick, because when we discussed who we thought could play that, we actually had nobody in mind for it. And we had our, uh, Hunter come in, uh, Turville come in to do it. He's been just great on it. I should point out the part of Michael McCormick is almost as large as Lombardi's part. Hmm. But the parts of Marie and the players are actually smaller, which is kind of unusual. He's the only fictional character in the show. The others are all real people. Uh, and uh, but and you, he was, I think, in part put in the script maybe as a plot device to move the action of the show because it's not conventionally uh, plotted or anything. But because of that, uh, he has a lot of lines in the show. And uh, uh, Hunter, who's playing him, has added a lot of, of more dimensions to him, uh, his personality, his personal life, and that sort of thing, than I realized in the script. And uh, I, I applaud him for that. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, uh, I'm speaking in this portion of the morning show with Charles Ramsey and Mandy Habel Ramsey, who are co-directing the current production of The Lakeside Players performances at the Rhodey Opera Center for the Arts in downtown Kenosha, performances of Eric Simonson's marvelous play Lombardi, which, of course, tells the story of the one and only Vince Lombardi, legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers. So 
when one goes to this play, is it important to know very much about the Packers and or Vince Lombardi, or at least generally speaking, is this the kind of play that just about anybody will find both accessible and interesting, uh, even if you don't come to it deeply steeped in Packer history? I think it's something that anybody um, can go to, no matter whether they know everything about the, the Packers or nothing, because they give enough details in the play to get the essence of who Vince was. Um, it shows a range of, of um, personality that he has from that, the very feisty, um, no-nonsense coach who is really tough on everybody, his players. But then we also see a very vulnerable side of him as well, and that might be a um, a side that maybe people weren't aware of. and uh, But I think that in general, you don't really have to know anything about Vince Lombardi or the Packers to enjoy this production. Is it uh, a play that, in a sense, unspools kind of unconventionally. I'm trying to remember. I've actually seen it twice, and I love it. But I don't remember if if it's one of those plays where scene one is now and then scene two is two hours later and scene three, I mean, where it's, you know, kind of a smooth chronological sweep or if it's, or if it's a play that, in a sense, kind of hops around a little bit or is a little more timeless. Can you uh, remind us about that? Yeah, it does hop around. There are, are two flashback scenes, uh, one which takes place in the 1950s uh, in the Lombardi home, uh, which has to deal with when uh, Vince decides to take the job with Green Bay, and it's kind of a humorous scene because uh, Maria's wife brings out the atlas because they don't know where Green Bay is at, and she's looking at the map and mispronouncing uh, Wisconsin towns and that sort of thing. There's also a flashback scene uh, with uh, Jim Taylor, who was the player's rep uh, for the Packers, when he initially uh, talked to Lombardi. There's a scene where the players are playing foosball, and then he starts talking about when he initially approached Lombardi, they were organizing the union, and there's a conversation in Lombardi's office uh, between him and Lombardi, but that's actually a flashback. So the actor literally goes, there's a light change, and he just walks down stage, because there's multiple settings on on the uh, stage. For this sort of thing with minimal you know like a chair or two or a table or whatever on there so it just transitions and the lighting is particularly important on the show because that indicates a change in time hmm. on that uh the beginning and the end there's an epilogue and a prologue where uh vince lombardi and michael mccormick the reporter both come out and have monologues they don't speak to each other but we you know they're basically uh things to establish the the uh characters hmm. But they're not a typical dramatic scene by any stretch. It's just them looking out at the audience. They're not even speaking to each other. Right. There's also a flashback scene where um, Lombardi addresses his new Packers players for the first time upon arriving there. And then he has a meeting with Jim Taylor and Paul Horning. And he talks about how um, he says, Jim, you're going to play the same position you've been playing. And uh, we'll do this and this. And then he lets him go. And then he says, Paul, I know that in the past you've played five different positions. How does that make you feel? And Paul says, well, when you play it that way, it makes you feel kind of tired. 
Hmm. So he said, you're no longer going to play five different positions. You're only going to play this position. You're going to be my Frank Gifford. And then they have this little discussion about this is what you're going to do for me and this is what you're going to do for me. And uh, and then he that scene morphed into a solo monologue with Lombardi where he has the chalkboard. And it's like he's addressing the team and he's talking about this um, thing that's play that he put together that um, was part of the success of the Packers. And he describes it and demonstrates it on the chalkboard. So how did this go over uh, with your first weekend of performances? And, uh, you know, once in a while a a play opens where you're just, in a sense, kind of barely ready and things come together at the very last minute. Uh, Was this one of those experiences or did you sort of cruise into opening night absolutely polished and ready to go? Well, I think that um, overall, the whole, within the whole rehearsal process, I think we were a little bit ahead of schedule. Um, Lombardi and Michael McCormick have a very, very heavy line load. And um, for the most part, um, we were very ready to go, but there were some little bits and pieces that they had to polish up a little bit because it, it was just a lot. Both of them just have... Um, major loads, but in general, we always seem to be a couple days ahead of schedule. So we have uh, one more weekend of performances uh, yet to come. What happens this week between the two weekends? Well, we'll have a uh, brush-up rehearsal where the uh, actors come in just review their lines. That'll actually be on Wednesday. And then they come back Friday and do the last three shows. Hmm. And speaking of that, uh, Charles Ramsey, explain to our listeners uh, the time for the performances this weekend and the somewhat unconventional time of Sunday's matinee. Uh, performances will be this Friday at 730 at the Rody Center, on uh, Friday and Saturday at 730. And on Sunday, uh, again, this is a special time. It'll be about uh, 5 p.m. The show has an intermission and runs about two hours. And explain why it's at 5 o'clock, because that's not usually when your matinees are. Well, we did not uh, want to compete with the Packers game, which will be on at uh, noon that day. Uh, but I will tell you a side story on that. The, we did have a show uh, uh, on Sunday, and it was at 2 o'clock, even though we initially requested it not to be at 2 o'clock and move to that 5 o'clock time. The reason why it was not done is that they had uh, the uh, management there had already had a group of, of, I believe, senior citizens were already scheduled, even before we began the production, to come in that day at 2 o'clock. And it was like a group of 60 people, and they were coming in from Madison. So I said, okay. And we ended up having a pretty decent crowd anyway, even though the game was going on and it was actually finishing up. I was tracking it, and it was finishing up around uh, intermission when we were doing intermission, when the, when the game was finished. And, of course, unfortunately, they lost yesterday by, by a point. But, uh, uh, yeah, I was uh, a little concerned about that. I know the crowds would be less because of that or, or not. But, yeah, we had this bigger crowd, so we had to keep it at two on Sunday. But we're going to move it up for next Sunday for our last show. And it ended up being over about 107 people hmm. for last Sunday. So that was pretty good considering. No kidding. Well, it's a terrific play of course by Eric Simonson and uh, 
And I agree with you that uh, whether one is a, a football fan or a Packer fan or not, uh, there is so much to enjoy uh, about this play and about your production with performances coming up this uh, this coming weekend. And you can go to uh, the uh, the website for the Lakeside Players to get more information. And otherwise, tickets will be available at the door as well for Friday night, Saturday night, and late Sunday afternoon. And co-directing this production, Charles Ramsey and Mandy Habel-Ramsey. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. Best wishes to you and your cast and crew for the remaining performances of Lombardi. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. When Vince Lombardi took over the Green Bay Packers in 1959, they were arguably the worst team in the NFL. The previous season, their record was 1-10-1. Vince Lombardi's first season with the Packers as their head coach is chronicled in an amazing book by John Eisenberg called That First Season, How Vince Lombardi Took the Worst Team in the NFL and Set It on the Path to Glory. Obviously, a change needs to occur at the top once uh, the sort of the organizational structure of the team has been changed. And ultimately, the man brought in is Vince Lombardi, who learned the business of football and and sort of forged his own coaching style uh, from a couple of different teams and with a couple of different people with which he'd worked. Tell us what was most uh, important uh, about uh, Vince Lombardi. Uh, experience in football before coming to the Packers? What shaped him? Well, he had been a high school coach in New Jersey and then <clears throat> five years at the at the at Army under Red Blake, uh, who was a legendary coach back then, and, and then five years as the offensive assistant to the New York Giants. And I think if I had to say which of those informed his uh, style the most, it would be the five years with Red Blake. Red Blake was really Lombardi's mentor in uh, football. And Red Blake, he coached at the Service Academy, and, and a lot of those teams, you know, the, as you might imagine, he, his style uh, made the most of what you could get at a Service Academy, which was a lot of discipline, a lot of organization, uh, an emphasis on fundamentals, nothing really fancy, great effort, you know, simple, straight-ahead football, uh, executed well, and executed and practiced until it was executed well. So Lombardi was really, really affected by that, and uh, when he came to the Giants, uh, he, he put a lot of that in motion as an offensive assistant. A lot of those pros didn't like it. You know, they weren't getting paid enough money to get yelled at is what they thought, and, uh, but ultimately became a very, very effective uh, style uh, with the Giants, and he put his own things. He tweaked to Red Blake's system. He was an offensive innovator, uh, an X's and O's guy, and he had some fun. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, m- blending the pass with the run and trick plays like the halfback pass and things like that. And so when he got to Green Bay, uh, he had five years in the pros, uh, sort of as an assistant, tweaking a system that had really sprang, uh, it really came from his time at Army. And then he uh, added to the, the final piece of the puzzle was his ability to lead, which I think was sort of intrinsic. You know, that was his personality. Uh, and once he had a team uh, in, under his thumb, once he had his own team, then that's when his powers of leadership sort of uh, came to the fore. And those, I think, were just a natural 
that's who that's who he was. You tell us that as he was interviewed by uh, Dominic Olenzak and uh, the others at, at the at the top of the organization, you say his interviewers found it slightly unsettling that he, meaning Lombardi, had never been a college or pro head coach, and Lombardi insisted that he would only come to Green Bay as a dual coach general manager with full control of the team. I mean, really, when you think about it, given uh, the kind of experience that he had, Lombardi was asking for a lot, and it was a real, I suppose, step of faith and act of courage for them to give someone like Lombardi uh, that amount of control, especially given the way in which the Packers had typically been operating and, and run. Yeah, I think he sort of put in a big city power play there. I think he just kind of came in and said, hey, I'm a New York guy. I'm the big guy. I've been with the Giants. I've been at Army. Uh, you know, and he, his voice filled a room, and he commanded the room. And, and uh, I mean, it, it wasn't fake. It is, it's who he was. But I think he, uh, uh, Wellington Mara, who owned the Giants, was one of the lions of the NFL, told him. He had been offered the job uh, to coach the Eagles the year before and turned it down. Wellington Mara said, don't go there because uh, they have meddling owners and, and uh, you won't get what you want to do. And so he turned it down, got a raise from Mara. And then this time in Green Bay, Mara said, well, you can go, but make sure that you're, you, you, you're unimpeded as a, as a coach. And he, wound, he asked for a lot of things, and it was just a good timing. The Packers were ready to cede control to a guy and they finally decided this was the guy. Hmm. Certainly one of the better moves they ever made. Of course, but uh, but you know, at the moment they could have no way of knowing with with any certainty that it was the move that was going to um, make no. the big difference. But uh, you 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 tell us Lombardi was thinking to himself, if this is my only shot, I'm going to do things my way. You tell us uh, one of the things I really appreciate uh, about your book as we uh, enter chapter five is that. Uh, as you describe the scene of Vince Lombardi first coming to Green Bay as the newly hired coach, uh, you, you paint a, a picture of, um, of, of Olenzak and the other directors waiting there um, with not much in the way of nervousness. They're shivering and smiling. You say, few had seen Lombardi in person. They showed no sign of nervous anticipation as he walked down the portable stairway. Lombardi was not a legend. Grown men didn't gape when he walked by. He was just a football coach, a career assistant until now. I mean, it's so important for us to be reminded about this because, of course, now he is the great Vince Lombardi, practically belongs on Mount Rushmore, but not back in 1959, not yet. That was my goal in this book, to be very honest with you. Uh, My goal in writing this book... uh, once I sat down to do it, was to paint him in human terms. Uh, Because if I'm going to write a narrative of the 1959 season, it begins, as it begins, Lombardi is no one's idea of a legend. Uh, He's just a coach that has his own set of insecurities. He's a little old and uh, for a head coach, and he wants his first and only shot. He wants to do well. And no, he is not a legend. He is an unknown guy for the most part in Green Bay. And, uh, my, I, I thought it was important to, to depict that and to relate that and to make sure people understood that, that he was a human, and he made mistakes that first year, too. Hmm. Like, you know, he, he, he might belong on the side of Mount Rushmore now, but uh, uh, he, he, he did make mistakes. He was a human being. 
Tell us about a couple of the things he did, not even yet with the players, but just with, for instance, those managers of the team. There are a couple of moments you tell us about in which Lombardi very emphatically established his um, undeniable authority. I mean, that he was altogether another step up from uh, those directors, and uh, he made that unmistakably clear right from the start. Well, I think what you're referring to, uh, right, that, that period when he first came to Green Bay that day, that very day, uh, uh, there was a radio man that wanted to interview him as he got off the plane, and, and uh, the, the Dominic Olnichik and the, the, uh, uh, the directors were there to greet him and said, oh, we'll do that tomorrow. There's a press conference. And Lombardi said, no, I'm doing it now. I promised him an interview, and I'm giving him an interview. Right, and, of course, Scooter would have said, oh, well, whatever they want, they get. But uh, Lombardi, I, I thought that was a little moment that spoke volumes. Absolutely. Like, from now on, from now on, I'm doing what I want, and that's pretty much the case. Wasn't there also uh, a moment when he essentially turned uh, Olenzak and others away from training camp? I mean, they had expected to kind of show up and hang around, and didn't he sort of eject them, or from, or maybe yes. it was from a players' meeting or something? Well, at the very beginning of training camp, uh, he's doing a meeting. He's running a meeting, and uh, he looks out, and he sees Dominic uh, in the back of the room. Man, it had hired him. And he says, what are you doing here? And, uh, uh, you know, he shrinks out. Of the, this is the head of the executive committee, shrinks out of the, the back of the, uh, of the room. And Lombardi tells him later, look, you know, I'm sorry, but uh, this is, uh, this is, I'm the coach, and this is not for ownership, and, you know, we can do our thing. Uh, in the offices, but the coach of the team, it's this is for coaches and players, hmm. and uh, they let him do it. I mean, they, they so it was very clear, you know. He had Wellington Mara's words in his ears, you know. You, you, you do what you want. One of the things that he began talking about, which apparently uh, connected very powerfully with especially some of the Packers, was when he began using terms like perfection and described himself to his staff as a perfectionist. And this was the kind of language that apparently the Packers had not really heard from any of their coaches in quite some time, uh, if ever. Um, and you know, now we, we read those words, and that doesn't, doesn't seem like that big a deal for a coach to be a perfectionist or to have his players striving for perfection. But this in and of itself was really transformative for this team. Explain why. Well, they had really throughout pro football, uh, pro football in the 50s, I mean, don't get me wrong, there were some, I mean, Paul Brown was a fantastic coach in Cleveland and uh, an innovator and won championships and uh, was very organized and, and disciplined uh, and people, you know, did what he wanted but uh, on his team. But a lot of the coaches, a lot of the teams, I mean, the best player was Bobby Lane of the Detroit Lions. who was, you know, out all night drinking and he'd show up on Sunday and, and uh, it was sort of a gunslinger. It was a more of a loose coalition of guys, you know, it wasn't so organized and, and crisp. 
And so, uh, you know, the coaching wasn't really heavy-handed that way. More of that was You'd see more of that in college ball. Right. If so, I can read, uh, I, I love the way you put this. You said hard-boiled college coaches such as Bear Bryant could get away with demanding that impressionably youngsters, uh, impressionable youngsters not make mistakes. But pro players were older, wilder, and harder to manage. Frankly, not paid enough to put up with such high-minded bull from their coaches. Lombardi might have a fight on his hands, the assistants feared, <laughs> in terms of demanding and expecting perfection from his players. Yeah, they weren't making enough money to have a guy make them do the same play 40 times in a row until they got it exactly right. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of concern about that uh, among the staff, but Lombardi was undeterred. Hmm. We're going to do it. Tell, him, uh, tell our listeners about uh, some of the ways in which training camp was like nothing else that any of these Packers had ever experienced before. Well, calisthenics went on for half an hour. Uh, uh, there were people going to drop it and going to the hospital. Uh, he would have these things. These players still talk about it years later called a grass drill, which was running in place, and he'd yell down. They'd have to hit the ground on their bellies, and then he'd say up. They'd jump back up and keep running in place. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, he was going to get him in shape. So tremendous amount of exercise, a lot of running, wind sprints. Uh, the, these guys that had not done any training suddenly were in shape. And uh, they would uh, have these one-on-one -on -one drills, a nutcracker it was called, where linemen would line up against each other. You know, it's like those National Ge Geographic videos, you know, where you see the two animals out in the wild, you know, button heads. That he would do that for hours on end. He was going to make them tough. Uh, and then they would practice these plays. Uh, he simplified the playbook a great deal, but he demanded that they run these few plays correctly. So hmm. practice, practice, practice. I actually uh, uh, was just trying to find in the book the, the specific mathematics, because you tell us at one point just how simplified the playbook became. I mean, compared to uh, uh, what Coach Scooter had, had had before, I mean, it was... Uh, a much smaller playbook, and then, as yes. you say, he wanted those those many fewer plays done much more effectively. Well, Scooter's playbook was four inches thick. It was uh, a lot of gadget plays and arrows and do this and do that and options. It was indecipherable, I think, to most of the players. Uh, Jim Taylor couldn't remember the plays. He had to sit on the bench. And Lombardi came in, and it was uh, maybe a quarter of an inch or a half an inch thick. Just we're, here's our playbook. It's simple. We're going to run a few variations off of them, maybe 40 plays max, as opposed to probably 200. Hmm. And, uh, you know, but we're going to emphasize these simple plays. It's basic stuff. The Packers, you know, end to sweep, off tackle, square out to the receivers, simple stuff. But we're going to, uh, if you really execute well and, and know what you're doing, uh, we, we, we'll beat people with them. One of his... Uh innovations with training camp was uh, something that occurred regarding some of the veteran players. He started training camp with actually the rookies, and then uh, the veterans were allowed to come a little bit later. Tell us about the uh, very surprising experience of a couple of veterans who, uh, who came on site a, a day or two early thinking that they would be, uh, I think, maybe playing some golf or something as they had typically done in years past. Tell them what Lombardi made them do. Right, that was Jerry Kramer and Joe Francis, I believe, uh, drove in, and they were veterans. They were second-year players in 59. They'd seen the veterans the year before. You could show up a few days early to camp while the rookies practiced and play golf, 
sleep in, go out at night, have fun. So they showed up, and they got ready to go play golf, and Lombardi was standing at the door saying, where are you going? And uh, they said, oh, we're going to play golf. He says, well, you better put those clubs away. Once you're in this building, once you're in camp, you're going to practice. Uh, there's none of that. The old rules don't exist anymore. And some of the veterans exploded, hated that. The young guys like Kramer and Francis just went there, put their uniforms on and went to practice. But he, some people didn't like it. But uh, that's the way it was. Hmm. One of the biggest reasons why training camp was so important was because among Vince Lombardi's biggest concerns was that uh, the Packers of the previous season were, at least for the most part, woefully out of shape. It's probably important for us to say that, uh, that this was an era when there were probably plenty of pro football players who were not in shape in the way we think of pro football players now. No, being no. Uh, you know, finely honed machines. Uh, but even by uh, the standards of 50 years ago, the Packers were uh, a very out-of-shape ball club. Yeah, if they didn't do it on their own, it wasn't done, really. I mean, like I said earlier, the wind sprints uh, at the end of practice were often called off. It was just sort of a little bit of exercise to get warmed up. They, they really didn't train. They just didn't. So, uh, and they smoked cigarettes. I mean, you go back... And look, it was uh, it was pretty sad. They 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 were just in not in playing shape at all. Hmm. So that was a huge change. One of the things that Vince Lombardi had to figure out is what players were going to be able to figure in uh, in this new culture that he was trying to build, and uh, and those players that were. Uh, that were gifted but also disciplined and committed enough to uh, to make things happen. And uh, as we read your book, we, we realize that that had to be one of the greatest challenges for Vince Lombardi. And I think it's especially striking that he ends up uh, ultimately embracing players as different from one another as Paul Horning and Bart Starr. I mean, you couldn't ask for two more disparate football players in terms of temperament and personality and personal priorities. Oh, that is true. He, that was probably his greatest triumph was looking at the films of that season the year before and, and the ashes of it and figuring out who could and couldn't play. I mean, most, that is, we are at the crux of the matter of the turnaround there. It's deciding, well, which of these guys on this team can I go forward with and which can't I go forward with? And uh, I, the, the the great triumph of any leader is to put people in the positions where they can succeed uh, as opposed to fail. And uh, that was certainly the case with Horning, who had been floundering as a pro, drafted as a quarterback. He he was sitting on the bench. He was played fullback some. They didn't know what to do with him. But uh, uh, Lombardi said he'll be the halfback in my system, and he can run, catch, throw, pass, kick, do all these things. And, and so he found a place for him, and Starr took a long time. He was uh, had been in the league three years and had not done well, and Lombardi wasn't sure that he was he was the guy, and as a matter of fact, picked some other people ahead of him. But in the long run, Starr uh, proved to Lombardi that uh, you know he was he was the quarterback for the future. Mm. You remind us actually that the 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 NFL team where Lombardi was before the Packers, the New York Giants, had a really odd scenario at the quarterback position. And you tell us it's 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 uh, not 
not uh, not clear just whose idea it was, but uh, Lombardi was the offensive coordinator of the Giants, so it's possible he had something to do with the odd way they handled the quarterback situation for the Giants. Can you tell listeners about that? I was fascinated to read this. Yes, well, uh, Lombardi, I think it was probably Lombardi's uh, doing. They had a couple quarterbacks on the Giants, Don Heinrich and uh, Charlie Connerly. Connerly was the main quarterback, but Lombardi would start Heinrich, who was kind of a sharp guy, and uh, and he would start uh, Heinrich. Heinrich would play the first quarter, and Lombardi would stand on the sidelines with Connerly and say, you can do this, look, look what he's doing, you can do that, you can exploit this, you can exploit that. He would almost have a tutorial through the first quarter while Heinrich played, and then he would put Connerly in. I mean, today, the coach would be fired in two minutes. It's like you're wasting the first quarter without your best quarterback there. What are you thinking? But uh, uh, Lombardi sort of thought it was important enough to, to that what he could explain to uh, Connerly on the sidelines would be useful. So that's what they did, and they wound up in the championship game a lot, so it, it did work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating scenario. Yeah. And, and I, it, it comes to mind because... Among the most difficult choices uh, Lombardi faced, as you've already said, is uh, from an array of what at one point was six different quarterbacks. He had to figure out who exactly was going to start. And actually, even as the season gets underway, the position of quarterback is uh, still far from settled. Uh, Yes, yes. No, that was uh, very far from settled. Uh, He inherited... um, Lombardi inherited Babe Perilli and Bart Starr and Joe Francis as quarterbacks. They had been there in 58. Francis was a single wing in college quarterback, uh, just a runner. Perilli and Starr were veterans who had not done very well, uh, and he didn't like any of them. So he traded for Lamar McCann, who was a, a, a veteran with the Chicago Cardinals, a losing team, but he was a good athlete, and he played well in a lot of games, and he traded for him to be the starter, and uh, it was very unsettled. There were a lot of quarterbacks in camp, and he threw it open as a competition. But I think in the long, I think he thought all along that McCann was probably going to be the guy, and uh, and he leaned that way. And sure enough, McCann wound up starting the season as his quarterback. Hmm. Uh, as the preseason begins, uh, things are so much better than they had been the, the, the previous season as the Packers go on kind of a barnstorming tour. Things are looking better, although by no means perfect. Uh, uh, you tell us uh, after one of the, the first games uh, which they lost, Lombardi um, said, we made an error on every play. And you can imagine how a perfectionist like Vince Lombardi probably would look at those game films and literally see an error an error of some sort from somebody on every single play. I mean, in some ways, that line, as much as any, indicates the change in attitude with the Green Bay Packers in the way they were being coached. Yes, uh, they definitely, uh, it was a new day. And uh, he, he had put in these few simple plays, and and uh, it took, took a long time for him to for the players to sort of uh, execute them by rote in a lot of ways, but uh, the, the, he 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 did he would he the players knew when he they heard something like that that he was going to continue to push them. That's for sure. Hmm. You tell us that when the team watched films before it had been a very quiet thing where lots of players even fell asleep. 
Lombardi, conversely, was like a tuba player in a library. With his voice rising in anger, he pointed out mistakes, castigated the perpetrators, and frequently rewound film to show the offenses again. <laughs> I mean, that really fills us with some admiration for those Packer veterans who had seen life in a very different way. I mean, for them to adapt to this new style, I mean, for, for, for most of them, it had to be a, a tremendous challenge, not so much for someone like Bart Starr, but for some of the other Packers uh, so undisciplined. This was a whole new world. Yes. Uh, um, they, they still talk about it 50 years later, those film sessions. I think if you ask some of them, what do you remember most about Lombardi? They'll tell you. I remember those darn film sessions where you'd sit in there and he'd yell at you and you just heard that voice booming through the hall. John Eisenberg, author of That First Season, How Vince Lombardi Took the Worst Team in the NFL and Set It on a Path to Glory, published by Mariner Books back in 2010.